Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 163, Marcher Decay. Over the length of the 1400s, Marcher lords, who for 300 years had been the power players in England and Wales, were either being killed, dying young, or due to continued politics, were caught up in fighting and in acquiring wealth in other places. Thus, lands in other parts of England were of more importance or more value. While the Principality remained in the possession of the Prince of Wales, or the King, the south and east of Wales remained a muddle of lords from the beginning of the Norman Conquest to the end of the 15th century. But nearly 200 years of constant war, either in France, Wales, or England, had finally taken its toll on the lords. Few remained now in powerful positions. Of them, the Earl of Worcester and the Duke of Buckingham became major players. Both men acquired land from Chester to Swansea. They dominated much of the best land in Wales. Edward Stafford had been named the third Duke of Buckingham by Henry VII in 1485, succeeding to the position his father had been in before his failed rebellion against Richard III back in 1483. Stafford was all of seven years old at the time and in no position to really do much about his lands and titles. Likely, he only received the titles due to the links that he had Woodville mother and her eventual marriage to Jasper Tudor, linking him into the royal family on both sides. As time went on in the Tudor regime, Buckingham continued to build his power, and by the time of the ascension of Henry VIII in 1509, he was now a power player in English politics. But it all came crashing down when, accused of treason in 1521, he was arrested and executed. He was likely the last great Plantagenet who could have appealed to overthrow the Tudors, so his death ended a major competition for the paranoid Henry. The position of Duke of Buckingham would not exist again for a hundred years after the Tudors had gone and the Stuarts ruled. Charles Somerset, on the other hand, had been illegitimate son of Henry Beaufort and Joan Hill. Beaufort had been a Lancastrian loyalist who was killed by Edward IV and had all of his titles returned to his heirs on the assumption of Henry VII. Somerset benefited from his marriage to the Herbert heiress Elizabeth Herbert, Due to that marriage, he was created as Lord Herbert. He was linked into the royal family tightly during the reigns of Henry VII and VIII. He was invested as Earl of Worcester on 1514 and Lord Chamberlain for Henry VIII. Of course, the Beauforts were a part of the family of the Tudors through their mother, Margaret Beaufort, and of course, Somerset had been a key contributor to the war against Edward IV and Richard of York. These two men both gained great power in Wales as marcher lords linked to the boundaries of South and East Wales. Because of this, they became a focus of most of what we're going to talk about today, because both men, although on different wavelengths and different levels of comfort with the monarchy continued to wield a lot of power and authority and were financially bowed by their marcher lordships. This also meant that they spent an inordinate amount of time focusing on the royal household and in the politics of the day. This focus on court meant that the lords were at best absentee lords who controlled little of the day-to-day affairs of the area, 
in some cases, none of the affairs of the area, along with the money that was continually an issue for many of these lords, they didn't have the financing to realistically care for the locals under their care and did not receive enough back to keep the lands defended, which would, of course, lead to a lot of legal issues with managing criminals from land to land and other financial burdens that would be accosted upon the citizens there. Increasingly, the management of these lands either fell to local landlords or minor nobles, or in some cases to men appointed to manage the lands on the behalf of the lord, deputies as they would be called. This was something that had already started happening a hundred years previous during the end of the Glyndur Rebellion and continued to grow this period of absentee lords, especially during the War of the Roses, as more than a few were killed in this period. Because of this, officials and minor nobles in charge of these areas, rather than make things work well, seem to take advantage of this absence to make wealth for themselves and as well to abuse and control the people that they were supposed to be in charge of. Corruption, graft, extortion, and exploitation of the locals seem to be the order of the day. It was not to say that previous lords were much better on this front, but creating resentment amongst your subjects in an era of social mobility created by the end of the War of the Roses was likely a bad idea. The solution sought by these lords was, rather than to fix things or to deal with the problems, they doubled down. They instead went after the local population, trying to figure out why they weren't getting their fair share, rather than focusing in on the people who were supposedly officiating for them who were abusing and stealing from both sides. In 1500, for example, Buckingham held a council to find out why he was not receiving his share of rents and taxes off his land. His conclusion was... is based around the fact that the people needed to give more, not the fact that maybe he was being stiffed by his own local people. These aggressive charges would make enemies of the people, enough that in a few years, he could not even travel to his own land safely, and he would call on the king or Cardinal Wolsey to provide guards to help him enter South Wales during the reign of Henry VIII. As you can imagine during this period, the judicial system was not functioning properly and was one of the sources of anger for the local populations who had to put up with it. Lords had been using these courts, which were called sessions, or in some cases great sessions, in which they could level fines on lawbreakers and gain financially from these payments. They would, of course, charge people for various reasons, some of which were dubious, some of which were legitimate, and then, of course, charge them fines to achieve financial payments. They would also gain, because wealthier members of the community, who might be expected to appear at these sessions, basically as kind of the jury, would pay for them not to happen, thus providing a way to avoid any kind of jury duty for the whole court. So, in other words, the locals could pay off the Lord to not even bother to have these meetings, to have these courts and judicial decisions being made. This meant that there would be criminals who would go unpunished because some lords could not be bothered to spend a week sitting in judgment. Needless to say, this created issues locally. Obviously, this would embolden criminals because they could just avoid prosecution because of these redemptions, which meant that they can carry on doing what they wanted. Imagine a court of today being paid off by some rich lawyer who cannot be bothered to show up at a case of some bank robber or murderer, causing that particular criminal to get off. 
This is base corruption and usually a sign of a failed state in modern times. Early modern Wales, this was the cost of living. It makes it obvious why there was so much crime and disorder in Wales and England during this period if this was allowed to be a normal thing. It became such a problem that Henry VII court got involved to try and stop the practice. It, of course, carried on anyway as the financial remunerations mattered more than a strongly worded letter from the Crown about this practice. The other problem, of course, is some of these great sessions could not, may not be even held for up to five years. So if you paid them off, it might be a total of 10 years before some of these people sought and received justice. There are examples where the session redemption was forced on local people to gain financial payment for the Lord. In that case, instead of the Lord being paid off by the locals, the locals were, in effect, embezzled to pay this lord or the local official so that there wouldn't be a great session, not because they didn't want it, but because the lord or his official didn't want it. It was instances like this that led to the lordship of Hay to protest to the crown in 1518 about the practice. After the death of Buckingham in 1521, the court set as a practice that this great sessions were to happen twice a year, and not during the growing seasons, which of course would create a reason for the locals not to want to appear. No resident could be coerced into paying to have the session stopped, and if they volunteered to pay, they may not happen, but they could only do that for a maximum of three years. Certainly not ideal, but at least it put the power back in the hands of the local people, not the officers who were achieving financial gain off of this. On that front, the officers themselves created their own layers of issues. Many of these appointed deputies were set in place to carry out the administration of justice and basic government jobs. But all of this just became another point of graph. Extortion was fairly common, false charges to gain fines paid, kickbacks to avoid levying fines to certain others. All of this reminds you of more like the old mob days in Chicago from the prohibition era than some sort of modern ideal of justice. Effectively, there were as many criminals in government as there were out of it. Another commonality was that many of these deputies were Herberts, which meant that there were not English people who were inflicting these punishments and fines and draining the pockets of the locals, but also Welshmen. You get the sense that this was likely a common practice for many years prior to this, and it was ingrained in society, but as more people became literate and became a part of the system, the more they acknowledged how much they were being taken advantage of by these officials. It would also be a breeding ground for rebellion, something the Tudors largely were trying to avoid in Wales. Generally, Wales had been a problem since Edward conquered it in 1282, and one might argue it was a problem ever since it had to be formed by the cornering of the British in that area. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or vegan and veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? 
Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. A source of discontent in isolated citizens who felt no loyalty or reason to support the crown. The establishment of Henry VII had mollified to some degree these sentiments, as he was seen largely as a Welsh king on the English throne. Sooner or later, though, this would end, and if someone had not done something, Wales would return to its old ways as a feeder and comforter for those opposed to the crown. It might not be people fighting for independence, but it may be one where it drives a lot of pretenders and competitors. The death of Buckingham in 1521 created a vacuum for the king in the court to try and fix the mess, a point in time when the king could step in and be the, in quotes, hero of the day, to return peace to the land and loyalty, and of course, money. A happy people would be less likely to hide wealth away from their king if they felt secure in his rule. They would be less likely to try and take advantage of the, their fellow citizens. There would be less abuse and robbery and murder because there would be less reason for it. So in 1525, Henry VIII sent his child, Princess Mary, to Ludlow to manage the Council of Wales and Marches and deal with the issues that were driving so much of the trouble in Wales. Another critical advent in 1525 was also the death of Rhys Ap Thomas, the old Tudor loyalist who had virtually controlled a great portion of South Wales. After the death of Jasper Tudor, he had become more and more important to the Tudors and so much so that he was called Father Rhys by Henry VIII. At his death, his own heir, grandson Rhys ap Griffith, was shut out of his grandfather's powers and titles. 
The king did not trust him, it seemed, or at least did not think he was as effective or as well thought of. With the death of Thomas, the power vacuum allowed the council to come in and sweep under its own sway much of Wales. At the head of the council was Walter Devereux, Lord Ferris, who was appointed as head of the council on May 26, 1526. The council was not some small affair now. It had 340 people to help with the administration of the council and raise Princess Mary, who was at this time still a child. They were there to manage the oversight of the marcher lords. In effect, it was very similar to what had been done by with previous princes of Wales, and in this effect, Mary became the default princess of Wales. The first president of the council was Bishop John Versey of Exeter. He was said by some historians to be fairly ineffectual in his role, though it was claimed he should have been a good administrator due to his vast experience. Mostly, he was seen as a slow-to-act, typical bureaucrat who did little to change things and make things better, and had been allowing much of the problems to continue. His other leading lords were little better. Ferrier was seen as overbearing and vigorous in all the wrong ways, an aggressive, venile man who looked to his own aggrandizement to the problems of his surrounding citizens, and mostly was only really plotting and planning about his own issues and situations rather than worrying about the role that he was called to do. Also, to add to the problems, Irish immigrants were now flooding into southwest Wales trying to escape the revolts which had been happening at the time over there. This influx of refugees created a crisis as locals were calling on officials to stem the tide of these Irish immigrants, something that we'd be a little bit familiar with in current history. Of course, as before, more and more protests were being lodged with authorities over the unlawful behavior of various parties and how it was creating a larger class of poorer people who would then repeat the cycle as poverty would drive more and more criminality. The demand for law and order in Wales was growing, and in the absence of, or in some cases with the agreement of, the local lords, Angler was rising. It was in the midst of this issue that Welsh management of such a crisis that a different kind of issue raised for England. For we have reached the latter half of the 1520s, and the matter of the heir had become more and more pronounced for Henry VIII, and his slow descent into the reformation of the church over his desire for divorce created a spiral that could see the entire kingdom swept up into civil and religious war for the next two centuries. In Wales, the grievance of Resap Griffith over his being held from his titles, or his desired titles, was creating more and more of a problem, and led to an actual outbreak of something that at least Farriers called a revolt, stepping as he did to try and stop it. The rumpus that followed was little more than what could be politely called a riot, with both men drying knives. Supporters were raised, but they were really only a small amount of a few tens of people, and certainly not the insurrection the way Farriers described it, and certainly overblew the situation to his own benefit in the court. 
In the end, by 1531, Reese had been executed for treason on rather obvious paranoia of what he might do rather than what he had actually done. In the midst of these troubles at court, Henry had also gotten into trouble over his treatment of Princess Mary, seeing as she was the heir under other circumstances had she been a boy, there was a lot of support for her amongst the Welsh population. She was perceived to be, in effect, the Princess of Wales, and so her mistreatment by her father over the fact that he wanted to divorce her mother, Catherine of Aragon, had led to a lot of support from the Welsh people, who felt that he was being too harsh and too controlling and creating a situation which didn't need to happen. And because of this, there was certainly a level of rebellious mood flowing in Wales at the time. One could argue it meant that the crown had a lot less leeway in order to do what it wanted to do, and it needed to fix some of these issues once and for all if it was going to avoid the worst cause of the situation, which is a continuing spiral towards either a pretender or to support for one of the descendants of Henry over him. As these problems compacted on themselves, Henry and his council had come up with new legislation to finally deal with what it perceived to be the Welsh problem. It would bring Wales into unity with England and end the marcher lordships once and for all. The 1534 Act of Wales would be another major transformative document in the history of Wales one that would be both an object of resentment and a method for creating a path to reconciliation between Wales and England. And, of course, it would be one that would change forever the perceptions of what the Kingdom of England was and what its boundaries were. For Welsh people in later history, it would be a sign of betrayal and a sign of subjugation in ways that probably weren't predicted at the time of Henry VIII. And with that, um, we'll go in far more detail about this particular situation next time. Thank you all for listening. I hope you've had a great day, and uh, may you be safe and well. And if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And if you'd like to support the podcast to help us gain the needed research documents, uh, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you, everybody, once again for listening. Have yourselves a wonderful day, and we will talk to you later. Take care. Bye-bye. Been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.